Hi, I'm Harrison. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And today we're going down south to the circus. It's time to talk about Dumbo. So you all know the drill by now, but if you're a new listener, I'll go over it one more time. Basically, Harrison and I start each episode by going over a bit of background history that's important to the film we're talking about. Obviously, we aren't covering everything, but we try to cover topics that people may not know a lot about. And I want to start this episode by discussing the animation style that we see in Dumbo. So like watching Dumbo after Snow White, Pinocchio, and Fantasia, the stylistic differences are drastic. The beautifully painted cell backgrounds and the animation innovations that Walt was perfecting in the past three films don't really appear in Dumbo. Instead, the animation is a lot simpler, and that's intentional. If you remember, Pinocchio and Fantasia were box office flops for a number of reasons. The Walt Disney Company was in financial disarray. Walt decides the studio needs to make something cheap and fast to make up for the financial loss. He got the idea for Dumbo from a roller book and was originally going to make it as a silly symphony, but then expanded it to a tight 64-minute feature, which I don't think nowadays would be considered like a feature-length film, right? No. Generally, when you say feature-length, people think 90 minutes or up. Mm-hmm. You can get away, generally, mostly in animation, you can get away with like 70 to 80 minute. Um, but even that's kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, I think the last the last theatrically released Disney movie to clock in that low was the 2011 Winnie the Pooh, which we will get to. So to make sure production was cheap, animators didn't really do anything inventive or revolutionary. In fact, our man Chris Pallant calls Dumbo, quote, the clearest contradiction of Disney formalism and hyperrealism. Uh, so basically, it had to be made cheaply. Animators couldn't do what they've been doing before. But I would argue the studio still aimed for emotional believability because, like, I don't know about you, Harrison, but I would literally die for Dumbo. Yes. That elephant stole my heart. Yes. He cried, I cried. (laughs) Yes. 100%. Um, But to truly understand why the Walt Disney Company needed to crank out a cheap film, we have to go into a bit of Disney history that doesn't really paint Walt or his company in the best light. We haven't really talked a lot about the history of the Walt Disney Company in this podcast. Uh, We touched a bit on the origin in our episode on Snow White, but didn't really go into how Walt started his animation studio. Um, We might might hop back and cover that like in a later episode, but I feel like a lot of people already know about it. And there's this huge event that happens in 1941 that isn't talked about as much. It's the 1941 Disney animator strike. Who was Walt Disney? He's had some... Uh, controversies like most people from the past have. I think he had a lot of faults, did a lot of bad stuff, had a lot of bad opinions. Potentially the greatest capitalist of our time. I think, I would assume after, you know, at some point, I would assume that he like bowed out and just started running the company as a company and letting other people do all the nitty gritty work. You know, his issue with, was it like labor unions? But he also, you know, stopped unionization at his at his company and, uh, had, you know, believed that communism was going to destroy America during the McCarthyism scare and everything. It took me a minute to find actual sources that detailed the strike because most of what I found went over basically the bare minimum. 
and or didn't even include it at all. And actually, last night I was sitting here, you know, with the sources I had, had you know a basic template just of what we were going to cover today. And then I was like, I really need to understand what the strike is like. So Harrison, I kid you not, this is at like 9:30. I find a four-hour documentary on Walt Disney. <laughs> That I, you know, skipped around to like get to the good parts. And then I pulled like a 444 page book. So the documentary is called Walt Disney. It's by PBS. Um, It's two episodes, two hours each episode. Uh, Really well done. And then the book is called Drawing the Line, the Untold Story of Animation Unions from Bosco to Bart Simpson, excuse me, by Tom Cito. And he was actually an animator um, in the business before he wrote the book and has a very interesting story. So obviously, I'm going to cover as much as I can in this. But if you want to learn more, check out those resources. They're fantastic. I had a, it was like a breeze. It was a, it was a joy to go through them. So I wanted to talk about it in this episode because this show is called Dream a Little Deeper. We want to gain a deeper understanding of Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And I think a critical part of doing that is by talking about the darker aspects of Disney history. Um, Because if you don't address these moments, just pretend that they didn't happen, you really can't truly understand both Walt Disney, the man, and the company. That and the 1941 animator strike definitely influenced the production of Dumbo, which came out in October of the same year. So... Who's ready for a little history of the origin of labor unions in the United States? No one? No one? Okay. Oh, you wanted a response? <laughs> yeah. That, that was I thought for... you were just going to keep going. <laughs> no, that was for a response. It's oh, fine. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, there's, next... <laughs> there's no bold text in the script, so how am I supposed to know I'm supposed to say anything? I know. That was my bad. It's all good. Um, all right. So, the beginning of unions in the United States. So, obviously, unions back then and to this day, are still really not popular in the United States. And that's thanks to Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare back in 1919. Harrison, can you explain this? Yeah, so uh, this is generally understood to be like the first Red Scare in the U.S. And it didn't really start in in 1919, but it like hit its peak in 1919-1920. It persisted throughout the entire, like, through most of the early 20th century, and I would argue the Red Scare still hasn't, still hasn't quite stopped. Um, but it was marked by, like, a widespread fear of, like, super far left left extremism and, um, ideology. In large part, this was caused by the Bolshevik revolutions, um, the rise in anarchism, the October Revolution, stuff like that. Um, and a lot of, like, American government and American capitalists and business owners began to get worried that, um, labor organization and strikes and walkouts would be, like, the first step on a, first step down down a slippery slope, basically into um, chaos and the and communism as it's commonly understood in, here in America. Um, there is a uh, there is a uh, a uh, c- political cartoon that I'm looking at right now called Step by Step uh, by Sidney Green. It came out in 1919. It's literally on the Wikipedia page for the first Red Scare, which is why I'm looking at it. Um, it's like 
it literally has steps going down into chaos. The first one is strikes and walkouts. The first one is disorder and riots. The third one is Bolshevism and murders, and then chaos, and then question mark. And you can see a foot marked labor coming down the staircase about to like hit that first step. So people really saw like capitalists and the people in power really saw labor unions and strikes as that first step into communism and chaos, which brings us to the battle of Blair mountain, which is the battle of Blair mountain. So the battle of Blair mountain is, it was and is the single largest labor union uprising in United States history. And it is also the largest armed uprising since the American civil war. Um, a union, a union of coal miners in West Virginia armed themselves and rose up against um, the the company trying to force them to work in unsafe conditions. And in order to quash it, um, the army and the National Guard were brought in and just opened fire. And and I think something like a hundred people were killed and more were arrested. Like it's it's insane. If you want to learn more about it, um, journalist Robert Evans did a podcast series about the history of U.S. policing called Behind the Police. And he spends a good chunk of time discussing the Battle of Blair Mountain and how in the North, um, police were created with the primary intention to quash labor unions. So, it is tense, to say the least. Well, it's crazy because you say it's the second largest since the civil war it is the largest since the civil war yeah and i've never heard of it until now that's intentional it's the same way that people didn't hear about black wall street until watchmen had to draw attention to it right like it's just it's wild how american history is like continental u.s history is way more fraught than anyone has ever taught about and it's just like, oh yeah, labor unions were a thing. People didn't like them, but they ended up getting rid of child labor, and now they're not useful anymore, so we don't need them. So the Red Scare causes a fear of communism and labor unions in the United States. So how did we get to a point in history where people were actively trying to form labor unions? Well, the Great Depression had a lot to do with that. This is a time when basically everyone except the mega-rich people are really affected by it. And in the book I was reading by Cito, he basically says, like, there was a sort of class leavening. So the elites of society, being, like, the artists and the intellectuals, you know, were brought down to a lower class. Um, and then World War II comes around, and there's this threat of Axis power. So that's, you know, Germany, um, Italy, Japan. Um, and that really kind of solidified America's view on the wealthy class. So Mussolini and Hitler, they were capitalists. Uh, In Germany, Hitler arrested all union leaders. He suspended the eight-hour workday, and laborers didn't want that. Disney, obviously, like, he was a capitalist as well. And there's accounts of him, like, you know, wanting to call on Mussolini. And, you know, he was one of two Hollywood producers that openly welcomed Hitler's favorite filmmaker when she visited Tinseltown. So, you know, it's not like he's 
looking at these powers and being like, I'm not going to associate with them, you know, he is actively trying to associate with, with them. And so people, you know, laborers and people who saw Axe's power and was like, I don't like what they're doing. They see Disney's actions and they're like, great, <laughs> love it. So Hitler is giving capitalism a bad rep with laborers in the United States. People are suffering from the Great Depression and banks were also hit hard by the Great Depression. In March of 1933, FDR orders bank holiday. The bank holiday was March 6th. Roosevelt's bank holiday um, lasted a week. Uh, it wasn't just a single day. He also he also placed an embargo on the export of gold and suspended all payments of gold to satisfy government obligations. So he basically said, if you don't have the cash on hand, like, pay up. Um so a bunch of Hollywood studios were affected, but also 2,000 banks closed after that week. Like, he was just cleaning house. So this affected a lot of Hollywood studios close to bankruptcy because they relied a lot on Wall Street investments. Um, Disney eventually became a public company in the 40s, um, and that's just due to the financial state they were in. Roy Disney, who handled a lot of the finance, all the finances of the company, really convinced Walt to sell shares of his company. Um... But then Fantasia flopped, shares dropped from 45, not 45, $25 to about 3 to $4. The accounts are different. Um, and investors were dropping out left and right. Disney really, really, really needed a win with Dumbo. They needed it to help bring in revenue and put the studio back on track. But obviously, you know, things weren't doing all that great right now. So Disney got his studio attorney. His name was Gunther Lessing. He gave Walt's crew, like, this really sad story about how bad things were on the East Coast. Um, and basically, you know, would go around and, like, would have other animators go around and be like, Oh, life is so bad. If I had a beer, I'd be crying in it right now. Following this sob show, the studio attorney would then ask everyone for a 15% pay cut. So, you know, using, like, these ethos to kind of be like, Look, things are rough give us money. We need more money. But as it was the Great Depression, the workers were also having a rough time, especially in the film industry. Not only were things difficult financially, like working conditions in Hollywood weren't great when you think about it, like when you look into it. Um, there's a lot of really strict contracts, you know, they were firing live ammunition, ammunition at stuntmen, Studios would lay off people before Christmas and then rehire them after the new year to avoid paying Hollywood bonuses or holiday bonuses. And basically, screen credits were non-existent um, across the board. So people weren't really getting the pay or the recognition that they felt they needed. Um, and this is the climate that unions grew out of. Um, you know, people were meeting secretly with unions since about you know, since the 19, early 1930s, but secretly because they found, thought if the bosses found out, they'd lose their jobs, they'd get in trouble, not good. So the Walt Disney Company, comparably, was not as bad as other studios in Hollywood when it came to how it treated its workers. Um, you know, at first people like they were like, oh no, Walt Disney, that's a great place to work for, you know, comparatively good working conditions. Um, Walt would hire drawing teachers for them to help them improve their skills. And then like he'd invite people over to his house for parties, apparently. And then he would rarely lay people off seasonally, like we mentioned before. He felt like his company was just one big happy family, you know, and then they were all in this together and that, 
you know, their successes, they all succeeded together, they all failed together. But the issue was, as his company began to grow, it lost a lot of that, you know, the, the personal connection was not reciprocal. So, going back a little bit to Snow White, animators on Snow White were kind of like feeling not so great because they were told they had to work all this overtime and wouldn't get paid. But then they were told, but guess what? When Snow White's a major success, then you'll get paid for all this overtime you did. Problem is, they never got paid. Instead, Disney was like, no, we're going to invest this money in a new Burbank studio so that we can expand. So they're not feeling so great about that. Additionally, all animation credit was given to Walt Disney. So none of their names were in the credits of the film. Even more of a sour taste in their mouth. So they get to this new Burbank studio and they're expanding their company. And everyone kind of notices this change in the environment and in the hierarchy. A big part of that is Walt separated all the different tasks in different buildings. So there was a building for ink and paint. There was a building for cameras. There was a building for like animators specifically. And that would pretty heavily actually correlate with the salaries that people were making. And the salaries were like completely varied. So they ranged from $12 a week for some people to $200 and $300 a week for other people. Additionally, because the Disney company went public, the big bosses were making like five, ten times more than the highest paid members on the creative team and a hundred times more than the women that were working in ink and paint. Um, I think specifically in Disney's when Disney and when Roy convinced Disney to go public with the company, he had to sign some contract and Roy was guaranteed a thousand dollars a week in Disney and Walt Disney was guaranteed like two thousand dollars a week. So as you can tell, like pay is just like all over the place. Not to mention the higher ups in the company, who I think this goes without saying, they were all men, um, they got access to all these like really, really nice amenities. So there was a penthouse club room, a gym, steam room, restaurant, all for the top members of the company. They also got really nice amenities in their offices. So like drapes, really nice chairs, um, rugs to make it feel more homey. And the issue that really came out is it wasn't kind of like Disney was, you know, like oblivious to doing this. I, they were very aware that there was a hierarchy within the company and administrators worked really hard to enforce it. So Don Lusk, he was a higher up animator, but he began to do some of the tasks that were assigned to lower level animators to help them out. So, you know, like cleaning up and that kind of thing. Higher ups took notice. They didn't like it. And so they took like all the really nice amenities away from his office and basically gave him like a chair and that was it. Art Babbitt, so he was one of like the most skilled animators at Disney at the time. Uh, he created Goofy and he was he animated the Evil Queen, Geppetto, the Mushrooms in Fantasia, had one of the highest salaries in the company. But he saw what was going on and he was like, uh-uh, this isn't good. So he became outraged because the studio refused to give his assistant a two and a half dollar raise a week. When he asked Walt Disney about it, Walt basically said like, quote, why don't you mind your own goddamn business? If he was worth it, he'd be getting it. 
essentially. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. Some of these stories are... mm, We'll get to them. While the company did not shine brightly in this instance, Art basically gave him a raise out of his own salary. And these amenities that I'm describing here wouldn't be such a big issue if the lower-tiered workers had decent working conditions and were paid a living wage. Another example of how bad conditions were um, working for the Walt Disney Company and how little everyone was paid. So in the Walt Disney doc on PBS, they talked about this woman in ink and paint because of the Great Depression. Um, Her husband left her and her kids. And in order to make sure her kids would get fed, she like wouldn't go on her lunch break and like work through her lunch break. And she passed out from malnutrition because she wasn't feeding herself enough. And then there's this whole concept of bonuses. So, like, in a lot of companies, you know, they'll have, like, a very, like, they outline when people get bonuses, you know, where, you know, it just, they'll be like, okay, every year or at Christmas you get a bonus. Well, Walt was like, I'm going to give a bonus when I feel like it. And kind of did the same thing with firing. Oh, my God, he's Mr. Burns. (laughs) So, like. Bring me that dog. I will make him my executive vice president. (laughs) but no he did and the thing is with unions you had to give two weeks notice two warnings before you had to give reason but like literally there's an account of walt who just fired a guy because he criticized a short that he directed because walt couldn't really handle criticism because he had a bad temper um it's just like (sighs) it's not a reason to fire someone it's not but that's what he did that's what he did at his company and that's why people were upset um And you also have to think about, like, kind of the shift in Walt's character. So, the Walt Disney Company kind of goes from this, like, small, like, family-feeling kind of place. But by 1941, Walt's a pretty big celebrity. He's not one of the major big five Hollywood studios yet. But he is treated like a celebrity everywhere he goes. When they move to this Burbank studio... You know, he's there's accounts that say he doesn't like wander the halls and have conversations with people. He's not talking to the animators. He's not engaging with everyone. He basically shuts himself in his suite and have has like administrators just kind of like barricading it. Not actually, but like they stand out there and they're like the in-between for everyone to get to Walt. So there's a disconnect there that's happening. You know, there's so many and because the studio is expanding, there's even more lower level animators below him. And so, as people are grumbling about their pay and being all like, ah, like, he's aware of it, but he really, I don't think, understands how bad it is. Again, because he's not down there with everyone. He's, like, choosing to shut himself in his office and work on that kind of stuff. So, 1935, some federal legislation's passed. The federal government passes the Wagner Act of 1935, and it allows collective bargaining. So, that prompts people in Hollywood, like animators, to begin organizing unions, which ultimately leads to the Screen Cartoonists Guild, which is the union that a lot of Disney, that the Disney animators ended up joining. So, there's all these grumblings going around. People aren't happy. Walt's aware of this happening now. He's aware that the union is beginning to make a little more of a presence, um... At his studios, I think that uh, the Screenwriters Guild was able to get like 400 out of 500 animators to sign on. 
They go to him. He refuses to acknowledge the union, refuses to engage in negotiations, pretends like it doesn't exist. In later documentaries, Walt goes on the record saying that he didn't engage in negotiations with the union organizers because he didn't think that's what his employees actually wanted. He goes on to say that if joining a union was something that his employees truly wanted, then he would negotiate and give them that. But he told the union organizers that he had to discuss it with his people first. Other sources I read and watched seem to indicate Walt was more aware than he lets on in these accounts, but I think it goes to show that he truly did not think there was an issue with the way he was running his company or treating his employees. As I've said many times before, he saw them as a family and felt that he knew what would, in the end, be best for them. So in February of 1941, Walt Disney calls the entire company to an auditorium and gives them a speech. He tells the company that he believes, quote, and this is a quote from like an audio file from the PBS documentary, but he says, quote, the men who contribute the most to the organization should, out of respect alone, enjoy some privileges. He then goes on to say, quote, if you're not progressing like you should, instead of grumbling and growling, do something about it. So they did. Well, obviously, the staff didn't take this too well, um, and actually, his speech prompted even more people to sign on with the union. People who were on the fence were like, nope, I'm on board with this. We're going to do this. Um, and Walt later apologized for the speech, obviously, and some animators have gone on to say, like, nowadays, like, if Dis- if Walt had been a lot more transparent with how bad things were financially for the company... <laughs> Then things might have been different, but instead he decided to patronize them and call all union talk communist. And that's really what made people upset at the company, at least for some people. All right, so now we're going to go back. Remember Art Babbitt, our, our babe, who paid his assistant out of his own salary? Who, who got mentioned literally 15 minutes ago on this recording. <laughs> so we're going to go back to him. Um, so... He was able to recognize how bad everything was going right now. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to join the Screen Cartoon Guild. The screenwriter, this this union that we've been talking about. And Disney literally looked at him and was like, hey, too brute. Like, literally felt stabbed in the back by this guy. He took it as a personal betrayal. <laughs> um, so Disney threatened to fire him, no matter how hard he worked. Basically, like, approached him in the hallway and said that. Um... And Disney did. He fired him, and he cited the firing as union activities. And basically, because negotiations were going nowhere, the guy, the negotiator from the union, was, like, going up to Walt, and he was like, Walt, if you don't do anything, we're going to walk out. And then that's another reason why Walt fired Babbitt, because this guy threatened to walk out. Um, So they all met together after Babbitt got fired. Um, you know, Bill Hertz, who, um, was Babbitt's assistant, who Babbitt paid more, he was like, hey, we're going to strike. And everyone's like, yeah, we're going to strike. So the next day, hundreds of animators gathered outside the Walt Disney, on the Walt Disney lot, and they picketed. About two thirds of the artists were part of the SCG, about half walked out on strike. So that's about 337. Um, Walt told... Walt basically was told it was less than that, again, which 
ended up fueling his belief that like, oh, this isn't that bad. Like, you know, it's not, they're not serious about this. And what's interesting is that all the future nine old men were striking, but ended up crossing the picket line and went back to work. So that includes Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, um, John Lounsbury, Mark Davis, Ward Kimball, Wolfgang Reitherman, Les Clark, all of them. Um, and it was really difficult for Kimball because he came from a very liberal family and they were all union sympathizers. And literally, Art was like, Kimball, no, like, stay with us. And Kimball's like, literally, if I don't go in, Dumbo won't get made and the studio will fail. And that's why he went back in. But it was like really difficult for him to make that decision. And then there's stories about how one, how one of the animators, Joe Grant, he would go out to the picket line and he'd ask for their opinion on some matters with the Dumbo production. <laughs> Just like, you know, ignoring that the strike was happening. Um, and what's interesting about this is that animators from other studios joined the Disney company on the strike. And there's a reason for that. So before the, 19, the early 1940s, there was basically an animators union at all of the animation studios except for the Walt Disney Company. However, the Walt Disney Company had like three times as many animators as the whole rest of Hollywood. So for the union, if they could get Disney to unionize, then that was seen as a major success for the union. Which is why, like, you know, you had people from all the other studios coming to join the movement. Of course, to Walt, he looks at this and he's like, my own creation has turned against me. Oh, no. And specifically, this strike, you can, um, had a major influence because it changed a bit of Dumbo the movie. So that scene where the clowns are all gathering and they're like, we're going to go hit up the boss for a raise. That was the animators who didn't go and strike satirizing the animators who did go on strike and being, you know, basically outwardly saying like, that was dumb. Um, so one month into the strike, Walt doesn't recognize the union, doesn't want to discuss negotiations. So nothing's changed. So one day they're out in the lot. Babbitt sees Disney driving by. Babbitt verbally abuses Disney. Disney hops out of his car, jumps over to him and like basically starts to beat him up. They have to be pulled apart. It's like this whole physical brawl. I'm not trying to laugh because it's funny. I'm just laughing because like it's just like, oh my gosh, these people would actually, wow, this is the emotional point they're at. But that actually happened. And that really, in that instance, pushed Disney or Walt Disney to see this as conspiracy. The reason behind people would strike. Because in his mind, he's like, we're a family. Like, we love each other like a family. Why would my family go against me and like do this to me? And so There's he, only one answer. What is it? Communism. <laughs> well, he needed to blame, like, that's the thing. He needed to blame something on this because he was just so shook by it. Um, and at the time, like, communism was this, like, dark shadow looming over Hollywood. So, like, why not blame communism? So, Disney gets so upset, he leaves to go to South America. <laughs> um, and actually, that's the trip that will end up inspiring the Good Neighbor films which we'll talk about um, episode after next. 
Um, so he goes and leaves to South America. He's, like, so upset that, like, his dad dies while he's over there and he refuses to come back for the funeral. They had a difficult relationship to begin with, but, like, that's just kind of the emotional state Walt's in right now. Roy, his brother, is actually kind of glad he stayed there because he's the one who ended up resolving the strike. Five weeks into the strike, Roy basically signed a union contract under the name of the Walt Disney Company. Roy basically gives the unionists everything they asked for. They made the deal July 28th, 1941. Pay rates basically doubled. Animators making $35 a week now made $85 a week. But there was another round of layoffs. Um, and it's interesting because 207 union workers were laid off and then 29 non-union workers were laid off. So you can kind of tell, like, you know who who was targeted in that they had to shut down the studio for a couple months afterwards but the studio reopened september 21st 1941 and then walt returns from south america and he finds out what happens and he's mad so he goes straight to washington to try to get the federal ruling overturned but he failed and then like he fires babbitt you know and then violates the wagner act Basically, the company is like, we're firing Babbitt because he's artistically inadequate. And then, you know, Babbitt was like, this is what I do. And the court's like, he's not artistically inadequate. What are you talking about? So they made the studio rehire him. Um, but then he ended up, you know, not working there in the long run. But this whole incident marks a major shift in the Walt Disney Company. To Walt, the studio doesn't feel like a family anymore. He now hates communists. He's discouraged by his previous failures. He's now lost his trust with his animators and, you know, still blames communists for the strike. And many accounts, especially this PBS documentary I watched, they were like, he became a different person. You know, the way the studio ran, the way he treated his animators, the way he treated the people who worked for his company, it just completely, it completely changed. So it's a major turning point in the Walt Disney Company. And that's why I felt like it was important to talk about. Anyways, back to Dumbo. The studio succeeded in making it quickly and cheaply. It had about an $850,000 to a $950,000 budget, and it made $1.3 million in the box office. And unlike Fantasia, critics and audiences loved it. It ended up winning an Academy Award for Best Original Song. It was nominated for Best Song, um, Baby Mine. And Dumbo was going to appear on Time Magazine, but then Pearl Harbor happened, so it got shelved. So I just want to start by saying, can we just talk about how freaking cute little Dumbo is? Yes. Just with his, I love him. His big eyes and those big ears. And he's just right. like, oh. my heart actually melted. And I was <laughs> like, I don't want anything wrong to happen to this beautiful baby elephant. And I mean, honestly, nothing to the 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 most traumatic thing that happens to him, IMO, other than like his mom being put in solitary confinement, is he gets chased by a pyramid of elephants. So like, I feel like he's doing all right. Not to mention he gets like drunk on absinthe. I'm pretty sure that was absinthe. It it was green. It was absinthe. <laughs> like, because like, and like, you know. Really, what did that get him? He learned how to fly. <laughs> like, yeah, so net positive, net honestly. Positive. Oh so, 
When most of our guests had something to say about Dumbo, their opinions usually pertain to the depiction of race in the film, which we'll get to later on. But SC had a lot to say about Dumbo, both good and bad. Uh, similar to me, the emotional pull in the film resonated with him deeply. And at its heart, um, Dumbo is a really heartbreaking story about family. And there's so much that's truly beautiful uh, about that film. Scenes that will just like melt you. You know, Dumbo's walking to the, you know, the little cage to see his mom, and she, she can only put her trunk outside the the little bars and she's like oh at least i can like touch you and she starts to rock him you know and you're like why are you gonna do this to me disney you know um and i even a few couple years ago i watched it and that scene was just like destroying my soul um uh while dumbo you know tries to get like his his mom free Lindsay s also brought up the emotional heaviness with the baby mind scene after watching it as a child, I didn't avoid watching it for the long time because I hated the way baby mine me sob, like broke my little heart, puddle on the floor. That song hurt me every time. And so I would avoid the movie because I didn't want to listen to that song. Um, as I got older, I would I would fast forward the VHS through the baby mine song so I wouldn't have to hurt myself. Because the rest of the songs I loved were rollicking and joyous, and <laughs> Baby Mine hurts my soul. So I felt like the movie, I felt like the pacing was actually pretty great, and I think that this is the length that Snow White should have been. Yes. It's only 63 minutes, including credits, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um I think the length is good. I'll disagree with you on pacing because it's a bunch of silly vignettes for a, a good chunk of it. There's plot at the beginning, plot directly in the middle, and then plot in the last 10 minutes. So it's spaced out pretty well, but like what should be the second act climax, which is him getting the getting the feather and learning how to cope with it is the end of the movie as well. So they just kind of chunk all of that. We They're like, we got to find a resolution. We'll put it all at the end. It's fine. So you think it should have been longer? No, I think it should have been spread out a little bit more. And like, just... I think all the pieces are there. It needed to be assembled differently. Like, the clown thing, it goes on for way too long where he's in the burning building. And I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> we have like... We have like 20 minutes, we have like at this point 15 minutes left and we haven't run into the Jim Crows yet. What's the deal here? I don't know. A lot of the actual plot stuff feels very condensed and cordoned off from each other in the name of like having silly vignettes occasionally. Which I think kind of allows us to compare it a little bit to Snow White because I think that's something similar that we were saying with that movie is that like, you know, the plot, it's there but it's often overshadowed or like condensed so that they can have these longer form, like kind of to us now, random, silly, unnecessary, even scenes like the washing scene and like the extended cleaning scene. Um, except with this time, like, especially with the clowns, like there's not really like, it's not paired with a song, you know? 
that goes on forever. It's just kind of this long, drawn-out gag. And I would agree. I did think that the clown scene, when they're, like, he's in the building, that just, like, kept going. I was like, how many ways can you not pour water on a fire? <laughs> like, I was like... And then I was sitting there like, guys. And it was just dumb. I didn't even think it was funny. I was just like, guys, okay, we get it. You can't put out a fire. Like, And then they put literally put gasoline on the fire. I'm like, do we have, like... I know it's the 40s, but, like, do we have anybody watching over Dumbo? Like, he could die here. This is real. That's real fire. Like, I was genuinely concerned for that man's safety. Me too. I was like, and this is supposed to be funny? Like, or was it supposed to be funny? Or were we actually supposed to resonate with Dumbo and be like, this isn't good? Like, I I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know what you were supposed to take away from this. Because I'm sitting here like, look, you made people laugh. Mm -hmm. Should, should, like, yeah probably should have had some OSHA regulations in place here but like you made people laugh clowning is a noble profession <laughs> be happy with it but it's not considered in the movie a noble profession I know they're all I like know. oh he's a clown yo okay can we talk about that <laughs> talk about like drawing humor that doesn't actually feel like it's humor like um the uh, the other female elephants are hitting a little bit close to home <laughs> right now. It was really no like all the race stuff in this is really noticeable in June of twenty twenty, July of twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, to date this recording, um, but like hearing them go, hearing the 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 other single lady elephants going on about how they're a proud race mm-hmm. and he is now he is consorting with clowns so he's no longer an elephant they are like this close they are a millimeter away from calling him a race traitor explicitly mm-hmm. and it's wild mm-hmm. even at the very beginning when they're poking for, like they, Dumbo fresh out of the stork is like <laughs> just existing and they're making fun of his ears I'm like I'm sorry he is two seconds old. He will grow into the ears. Y'all don't exactly have small ears. Calm down. The only thing I can compare it to, because this is the time we live in, is the videos you see of the the white women getting mad that they're getting kicked out of stores for not wearing masks. Like, y'all are the agitators here. Stop playing the victim. <laughs> Who was Walt Disney? Was potentially racist. I I think he was kind of outed as a racist, question mark. Anti-Semite, I've been told. But then there's also like the talk of him being like involved with like the Nazis and like Germany and like all that stuff in the in World War II times. I think Walt Disney might have had some Nazi-esque connections, or maybe that was Dr. Seuss. I might be getting them a little confused. I don't really know a lot about that, just kind of what I see on my Twitter feed, like people getting mad about this or that. I know that people have mixed opinions about him, and um, people are like, he was a racist and all that jazz. But then, of course, there are all of the things that you hear about him being incredibly racist and incredibly misogynistic. I do know that his anti-Semitic history, and that was always that was kind of a moment where 
I had to separate what I loved from the man who created it because it's hard to imagine Walt Disney who created this brand that has been enjoyed by so many kids around the world was kind of hateful at times. Some of his beliefs I think are a little um, retrograde and you know do not hold up to scrutiny. But I mean like everyone from the time period back then like things have changed so drastically that things that they wouldn't have gotten bad press for then they would definitely be getting bad press for now i do i I know that his way of thinking you know in the 30s and 40s and 50s wasn't um, the best but it went with the time, um, speaking specifically on like racism. I would say on the whole, for a white man of that time, I'd say he was a good one <laughs> because he tried to make the world a better place. Um, but of course, you know, Song of the South exists, the crows in Dumbo exist. <laughs> so there are some things that aren't ideal. Going back a little bit to the race thing, can we just talk about the fact that when they're setting up the tent in the beginning of the film, it's all, like, black men and the elephants putting this together. So, like, on one hand, wow, like, these elephants, ladies, so badass. But then on the other hand, what are we saying about black people if, like, we're drawing direct comparisons I mean, in this scene, two elephants as they put up a tent. Alex, were you paying attention to the lyrics of the song? Oh yeah, no, I was too. We we work all day, we work all night, we never learn to read or write. Like it is explicitly like a racist slave working song, and it keeps getting worse. Like the mm-hmm. longer that song goes, it's like we don't know when we'll get our pay, and when we do, we throw it all away. <laughs> like this is, it is. It is a cons- it is a white conservative male's fantasy about why we shouldn't have a welfare state <laughs> because like if they can't be trust if these kinds of people can't be trusted with their salary why should the government help them at all which like mm. it's Walt Disney so that's entirely like that's a valid read at this point well especially since like this is a spoiler alert but, like, there's going to be a worker strike coming up soon, like a union strike, so... Alex, you can't put a spoiler alert on history. <laughs> well, like, I didn't know... Like, before I started doing research, I didn't know about it, so maybe someone else doesn't know about it, you know? You can't spoiler tag history. Well, that's I'm going like... to spoiler tag history. <laughs> Alex, that's like watching Band of Brothers and being mad that somebody spoils how World War II ends. Okay, but I also think World War II history is a little more commonly known than Walt Disney Corporation <laughs> history. I'm just kidding. Spoiler it out tag there. history. Oh, I just did. And even still, the moratorium on spoilers is much is up anyways cuz it was like 80 years ago. The spoiler moratorium is up. I said it. I'm not taking it back. <laughs> Like I said earlier, most of our guests had something to say about race in Dumbo. But the roustabout scene, uh, the moment in the film where nondescript black men work to pitch the circus tents in the rain, 
uh, it kind of goes over people's heads. But a few of our guests also picked up on the racist characterizations that Harrison and I were just discussing. Um, and then there's things like, you know, the roustabouts at the beginning talking about how <laughs> I'm trying to remember the lines. I, I, I once got the lyrics to the roustabouts Harrison, song. Harrison, would you like to pull we up the lyrics? You. We read them all out when we did our Dumbo recording. When other folks have gone to bed, we slave until we're almost dead. We're happy-hearted roustabouts. How did this... Okay, this is what, the 1940s? This is 1941. We don't know when we get our pay, and when we do, we throw our pay away. We get our pay when the chi- when children say with happy hearts at circus day today. Muscle aching, back near breaking. Eggs and bacon, what we need. Yes, sir. Boss man hounding, keep on pounding for your bed and feed, for your bed and feed. There ain't no let up, must get set up, pull that canvas, drive that stake. Want to doze Want off, to doze off get, get them clothes off, off, but must keep awake. Swing that sledge, sling that song, work and laugh the whole night long, you happy-hearted roustabouts. Pull yeah. Yike, okay, yeah, that last that last line. Pulling, pounding, trying, grounding, big top rounding into shape. Keep on working. Stop that shirkin. Grab that rope, you hairy ape. Stop. No, I just read that too. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> Give that one a big Steve Carell. Yikes. Yikes. You have been awarded a single yike. It is a big one. <laughs> happy harder roustabouts. They're just, they're just happy to work there. They're <laughs> these faceless black men building the uh building like this is how the movie opens you know if i recall correctly (laughs) so i mean not that they 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 really paint the uh the circus in like a um a good light in the first place because they all kind of like abuse dumbo so they make it seem like they're not great people anyway um but it doesn't it doesn't this doesn't help this doesn't this is only another uh and then another another crack in the in the armor that is Dumbo. One of the things that really stood out to me, like you've already mentioned the lyrics, the lyrics are atrocious. Um, but one of the things that stood to me was in the animation of the scene itself, none of the African Americans are setting up the big top have any specific identifying markers. They are the easiest, cheapest form of animation possible. They are the 1940s version of copy-paste. They have the exact same shirt, the exact same haircut, the exact same body types. All they did was color swap the shirts. And that, I thought I felt, was very degrading because if you're going to do this really awesome scene, it's very powerful music, even though the lyrics are crap, put some effort into it. But you know, being a product of racist animators... They were not worth the extra time and energy to make them dynamic and individuals in this music scene. And that was always very insulting um, to me because that they deserved that. And it felt like it was definitely a cheapskate moment because, yeah, don't copy paste your people. And it's like, I know with Dumbo, they were trying to make it cheaper. But they also have that Pink Elephants on Parade sequence, which, like, you know, they clearly could put the time and, you know, the detail into, almost. But then, so you can see, like, where they're, like, kind of what you're saying, like, they de- like their effort was, you could kind of see their effort targeted into different scenes. Priorities were definitely in areas that were not kosher. So they really shouldn't, you know, 
it was difficult to create a well-balanced song if it's just based in absolute blatant racism. And then the lyrics are another whole. Oh, the lyrics are... I would be insulted if you said that about a member of my family. And you that thems might just be fighting words. So... I can't imagine who thought that that was totally okay to put out on a movie released to the entire nation. Because you also have to keep in mind how many people go through this. The actual movie writers, the songwriters, the producers, the animators, the directors. There are a lot of steps and nobody flagged that as being inappropriate. I feel like we haven't. We also haven't talked about the crows a whole bunch. It's racist. That's all we can say. It's bad. I will point out this though. In terms of production, the audio quality on every one of those crows is super echoey, which leads me to think. Compare and it's echoey compared to the other voice parts in this. Like all the clowns sound normal quote-unquote normal like they sound good the elephants all sound good and isolated like they were in their own booth i am pretty much convinced because the crows have a musical number all of the all of the performers were did a group recording in a single studio which is which is why it's super echoey they they did okay that's what i figured no you're you're correct they did um the main crow was voiced by a white guy. Really? He was. The casting of the crows can be a bit of a controversial topic. The four side crows were all voiced by black men. These men include James Basket, who played Uncle Remus, Br'er Fox and Br'er Rabbit in Song of the South, Nick Stewart, who voiced Br'er Bear in the same film, composer and arranger Hall Johnson, and singer Jim Carmichael. However, the lead crow was voiced by a white man, Cliff Edwards, who was also the voice of Jiminy Cricket. Cliff Edwards notably did an imitation of the Southern African-American dialect of the time, emphasis on imitation. Clearly, we can see a bit of an issue with this. Additionally, Harrison referred to them as the Jim Crows, and that was the original name of the leader of the Crows. However, the Walt Disney Company changed his name to Dandy Crow in the 1950s because the original name referred to racial segregation laws. Um, The other crows are named Fats Crow, Specs Crow, Deacon Crow, and Dopey Crow, just in case anyone was wondering. What is the criticism that comes with the crows? Like, why, why why are people against the crows? The crows in general have a couple different reasons why they are worthy of criticism. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that they are the only characters that speak in Ebonics. The Rostabouts are not given speaking voices, and the crows are, and they are seen to be as disreputable if you look at the clothes that they are wearing, the way that they act. They are, they have the appearance of being disreputable, just like plan around hoodlums kind of idea and the leader of the crow's name is literally jim crow and he's the only crow voiced by a white guy and so it's very difficult to deal with when you are watching it with understanding of what 
racial dynamics are and the progress of time because it's again just like the Rostabout song it is very blatantly pulling from this racist concept um now, oh go ahead I was gonna say I, I, I believe there might have been another criticism of them but I'm not positive on that aspect and so is there anything like you guys wanted to add about the crows in general well I was gonna ask do you know because one thing Harrison noticed when we were watching it is that the sound quality with the crows the crow characters was different than all the other characters it sounds more hollow kind of like um instead of just having each character like by themselves in their own booth they kind of did like a group recording do you know anything about that at all i didn't notice that when i watched through it but now that you've mentioned it i'm going to have to watch it again um i was as every time i've watched this only recently that i've become aware of sound quality being a factor um as my husband's become working on his voice acting career i've learned to identify what is good audio versus what is bad audio and before i don't think i ever would have noticed the difference but now you that's a good point i should go back and rewatch that mm-hmm. that's interesting harrison uh, what caught that to your attention so it's it's the fact that like when you're doing isolated vocals of someone, ideally you want to be in like as much of a soundproof room as possible. But when you're doing music, you want it, you want those acoustics, you want like the, the chance for the audio to echo and like meld in with itself as you're going. And you can kind of hear that, like, it's not quite hollow. It's the, you can hear the room they're in. You can almost Foxy. hear it's boxy. You can hear their vocal tracks like melding with each other. It's very much a musical. Rec- they're very, if you, it sounds like they're in a musical recording space as opposed to a, a, a voiceover, voiceover recording space. Yeah. Mm. And that's mostly for the music stuff. I would have to go back and re-listen to see if Jim Crow's audio is specifically different. Mm-hmm. If it, considering his voice by a white guy compared to the rest of the crows, which definitely are all blending together. Um, and it's just more, like it's it's subtler like behind like production racism mm-hmm. like we were like we mentioned earlier. That would be interesting, especially because Jim Crow is the lead vocal in mm-hmm. if I if I see an elephant fly or that's not the right title. It is. Oh, good, yay me! Isn't it? Um, it would be interesting to mm-hmm. see if maybe as the lead vocal and the white guy, he got a different recording experience than everybody else mm-hmm. in the ensemble. Mm-hmm. I know that's been something I've been trying to figure out, but shocker, um, the how we made Dumbo, forty-five <laughs> minute documentary that Disney put out doesn't mention it. <laughs> I wonder why. The one thing yes. I will say, the one thing they did mention is, I guess um, they based the crows' movements off the Jackson brothers. It's just two of them, and they had them like dance on a stage, and the animators would like you know, use their movements to kind of like inspire the crow movements. And that's actually why a lot of people argue against the crows being a racist caricature. Cause they're like, well, they drew like black people. Like it's based off of how real black people dance. It's kind of what they From the say. black culture dance of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get that on the one hand, I, 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 I'm glad that they chose a, black person as their source reference but you can use an authentic source in a racist manner yes exactly it's you know tokenism is a thing Mm -hmm. 
Could you describe token, just in case someone's listening and doesn't know what tokenism is, like how, how would you define tokenism? Uh, I, I would define tokenism, and this is a very broad definition, uh, um, as having, like, for example, using the Jackson brothers for their reference material and then portraying those characters as an untrustworthy, you know, not high class, lowbrow, you know, taking an original source and then warping it. Um, but tokenism in general is, we're not racist, I have a black friend. We're not racist, I have a Korean friend. You know, it's, you know, we're not a racist show, we have an Asian subcast member. Obviously, we're not racist. It's saying that because you have X, you cannot be Y. Mm. It's a really vague definition. It's been a long time since I've looked it up. Something that I, because I watched the new Dumbo, I watched it a few times. I really, really love that film. It's not the best film, but it's a really like warm and fuzzy film. Dumbo is like, oh, I literally have a Dumbo right here. Dumbo's my baby. Um, you, You know, earlier I was like, I don't have anything Disney. Hang on a second. <laughs> like most of our guests who commented on Dumbo, Tasman's recollection of race in the film pertained to the crows. Yes, the crows, that was exactly it. I, when I was looking up about the crows, that is a bit, like, it's generally accepted now that they are racist. They are very racist. And it's very much to do with the time that it was made. Like, the crow, the main crow is literally called Jim Crow, and of course the Jim Crow laws in America. But as I was watching it with my dad, he was like, but that is what um, like, the, the accents and the way that they were dancing and stuff, like, there are videos of black minstrels at that time that were, like, they did perform like that. I was like, but the, the point is that they're a caricature. If you watch the, if you just watch, like, that that song, it isn't necessarily racist and what you see on the screen but like it they were voiced by white people white men putting on black accents it's, it's like it was like a virtual blackface in a way um and they i believe i read online that they've removed that scene from dumbo on disney plus they have not oh have they not we nope. watched it and it's there <laughs> Uh, okay, see, I was actually going to say that I don't think that's a good idea because I saw something that Warner Brothers, um, at the beginning of one of their films with their, like, mm-hmm. streaming things online, they put something saying there are things here that are, no, that are not represented by people at Warner Brothers today. We're not cutting the things that are racist out of this film because in doing so, we would be trying to erase the fact that they ever happened, and that is a incredibly dangerous thing to do and that was such a i just saw that on twitter which i need to put at the beginning of the old disney films mm-hmm. because like, like i said if i grew up watching big hero six my life would have been very different i like i like to think i'd be a superhero now but who knows <laughs> alternate realities and all that stuff but kids now growing up with things from 50 years ago they're not going to understand context that at the time it, it was fine but now it's not okay So uh, my name is Emily. I'm from here, Tulsa. I'm a teacher. Um, I'm super passionate about education. And um, what was the rest of the things that you Just anything about you. Oh, I really like cats. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, I am not like a super passionate Disney fan, but I have things within Disney that I am passionate about. So those are my things. Because it's the year 2020, I have to ask this question. Cats the animal or Cats the musical? Both. Sub question, the stage show or the movie? Both have their pros and cons. These are the most diplomatic answers, and I appreciate it. <laughs> you have an awareness about some of the controversy that surrounds these films, um, and especially the early films with race. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, first, just summarize what are the portrayals that you were aware of? Um, and then, like, did you always notice this, or was this something that was, like, pointed out to you and then made you think, like, oh, wait, there's Blackface and Dumbo? That I don't remember seeing because I was a small child the last time I watched Dumbo, but I have watched that scene like on YouTube and stuff and I've seen it. So as an adult, um, definitely didn't recognize that those were uh, racial things as a kid at all. Um, didn't It never crossed my mind. It had to be pointed out to me as an adult on the Internet. <laughs> so and I don't think I ever would have noticed or realized that had that not been pointed out to me. Probably not their their brightest moment. <laughs> so how do you think knowing these things mm-hmm. um, alters the image of Disney that most people have? I think that it maybe doesn't. I, I, and you say most people, so that's what I'm going off of. There are certainly people that are like, cancel culture, I'm done with Disney, I can't believe they did that. And there are people who are like, wow, they really messed up. That's not cool. But I think most people that I, I would think, it's just kind of like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. And they move on. Like, they're, I don't think it's enough to make most people like stop watching the movie if they like it or anything or like do anything to... I don't think it changes most people's view on Disney. Disney is still the, it's a monopoly on films these days. Like it's the most, everyone knows Disney and everything that's produced nowadays is somehow connected to Disney. So if I think if it truly changed people's opinions of Disney, that wouldn't be happening in the way that it is. Obviously, there are the Jim Crows, <laughs> which, you know, it's funny. I made a post a long time ago. I was like, Disney, uh, you can kind of own what you did, and you can cast actual black musicians to voice the Crows in a, in a Dumbo film. And instead of shucking and jiving, they can just, you know, create some music and kind of use the song. But it's funny because that... Um, there were no talking animals whenever they finally did Dumbo, um, or the remake anyway, and they kind of like played a song, you know, in the background, but like a band was playing it. And so, um, uh, and so that was like their, that was the only way that they were ever going to touch, <laughs> um, when I see an elephant fly ever again with a 10 foot pole, which was by, we're just going to kind of play the music in the background and ignore it. in a text this movie explains a lot about me as a person oh 
What do you mean? Yeah. I mean, one, um, to, while we're on the topic of the roustabouts thing, um, just the visuals of the tent being put up are extremely anxiety-inducing to me because at any point it looks like that tent could just blow away. Yes. Um, and I don't like that kind of anticipation. It freaks me out. And just the one shot of the corner of the canvas just billowing in the br- in the wind, just flapping around a whole bunch. I'm like, uh-uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. And I can probably pinpoint that level of anxiety from <laughs> that sequence alone. Um, but also, I to to shift to the other infamous part of this movie. It's just infamous for some reason. Um, pink elephants ain't scary. Changed my mind. No, it's not. It's not. It and it enjoyable. never was. It, it was never enjoyable. was. Like the people that talk about getting traumatized by pink elephants as children, uh, clearly didn't watch Fantasia because there's some weirder shit in Fantasia. Um. And as somebody that grew up on Fantasia, coming to Pink Elephants, it's like, oh, you guys want to keep that energy going because you legitimately like doing that stuff. Mm-hmm. But you needed to make it more mass marketable. I will say, I never, I don't recall watching Dumbo as a kid. It like just wasn't one of the ones that I watched a lot. So I can't really speak for being traumatized as a child by Pink Elephants on Parade. But watching it as a 24-year-old, am I, no, I'm 23, watching it as a <laughs> 2020, just like messing up my frame of time, watching it as a 23-year-old, um, I really, I really enjoyed it. And I liked it because I found myself kind of like watching it and being like, okay, how like are they animating this, like and making these blobs turn into like elephants that turn into cars that turn into like all this other stuff like the one thing that really got me was when the symbols crashed on the elephants and it like put them into separate pieces and then those pieces turned into more elephants and i was like oh my gosh like that's so cool you could see it splitting and then they form um and then the end when they become the clouds in the sky like i totally didn't see that coming and it's like it's really well done it really yeah Yeah, it's a animation spectacle like just from the mo and they're like completely conscious of what they're doing the whole time as animators because they start it they start that sequence with them lining the screen like walking up the sides of the screen Mm. which like one for them to break the fourth wall like that in this kind of animated movie is kind of wild um but also just the way they're stretching and squashing as they're walking is like there's a reason Disney animation like kind of set the standards for what animation the animation rules are, and one of those is like scratch and uh, squash and stretch. Like how much can your make sure your characters are like elastic to a degree, and you could see that principle really on display in in this sequence because there is a lot of bouncing and stretching and getting stepped on and and stuff. And I drew the comparison to Fantasia earlier, but like it, this almost feels like a Fantasia sequence at points, especially when the um, elephants are ice skating and gliding around and doing the, the skiing bit. It is like basically uh, the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies again, just with psychedelic elephants. But 
fact, if nothing else, just, just for the fact that there was a board of people who said, what if we get the elephant drunk for five minutes and he sees these terrifying hallucinations of pink elephants? So you thought that scene was terrifying? You thought, like, the pink elephant... You thought that's a scary scene? You think? Yeah, it was my favorite. It, it was very much like the, the Heffalumps and Woozles um, song, which I also loved, but it was also, it was creepy, you know, and uh, Pink Elephants on Parade, which I honestly, I sing all the time. I'm, I'm walking around Target. I am not the type to faint. You know, it's just, it's so, like, how did this get made? Like, it's, you know, there's part of me that kind of misses that, um, like you think about when when Mickey Mouse first started, he was basically like you know like a version of Felix, you know where it wasn't you know uh, it wasn't supposed to make like sense. It was just supposed to be like strange. Um, and a lot of that strangeness, it's like who thinks you know freaking Hufflepuffs and Woozles, pink elephants on parade, like we're just gonna stop the movie <laughs> to have this pink elephants on parade sequence. Like I'm just like how is where did that come from? And then it happens, and then we never talk about it again, you know? Just before, so real quickly, um, squash and stretch animation technique, could you, like, elaborate a little more on what that is? I mean, it's, I, I would, but it's, it's in the name, right? <laughs> like, it's one of, it's one of the principles of animation. I don't, uh, let me see what the other ones are. Give me a second. But the idea is for for good animation, in order for it to be expressive, you have to be compressing and stretching out your characters at points, which is why, like, uh, someone who does this really well is Gendy Tartakovsky, the guy that did Samurai Jack, the guy that did Hotel Transylvania, the guy that did... Uh, the old Clone Wars series. It's really, uh, it's really apparent in the Hotel Transylvania stuff because those characters are super bouncy, and like, it's w- it's a way to make emotions come across even like even more. Tom and Jerry also does this very well, where, uh, it, and it's Squatch and Stretch is really good for physical comedy because it communicates the impact of a thing, um, but because they stretch back out to where they're supposed to be in Tom and Jerry anyways. Um, it, it communicates like, like, yes, there was an impact. Yes, it hurt, but it didn't like kill them. You know? Yeah. The, the 12 principles of animation were Disney's principles of, of animation. Like they were pioneered by Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas, um, back in the eighties. Um, so like it's it it was more it, they basically compiled all this stuff together um that they were already doing it wasn't anything new specifically this movie compared to snow white pinocchio and even fantasia to to an extent just had a more comical casual tone to it like it kind of felt like a more slapstick um animation that like I feel I think was more typical of American style or United States style animation like pre Snow White, you know where it was like it it is more of like a con like a like I said like more slapstick. You don't really there's still the emotional realism I'd say because like when Dumbo and his mom are separated, 
and like that whole relationship, you know, I've, at least I felt that emotionally. Like you see Mrs. Jumbo, you know, in, in the beginning and she's like looking for her, her kid and she's like, where is he? Where is he? And like, you see that longing, which just makes the separation even more intense. But, um, yeah, but I felt like it was a less, um, less serious. There was less gravity to the stakes, you know? Yeah, it's considering what Walt Disney was trying to do with those first three movies, this is infinitely more populist than the other two, than the other three. Like, he was, like, he set out to make high art with Snow White, Fantasia, and Pinocchio. Pinocchio to, a, like, a little bit of a lesser degree, in my opinion, but, like, still pretty lofty goals. Uh, this one definitely feels like they're shifting more into, okay, we just need to maintain. Like, we need to stay alive. This definitely, like, especially with the war coming up. And you see that a little bit at the end of this movie with the war, the, the Dumbo war propaganda <laughs> um, right at the end of that movie. Um, but it's definitely more populist. Like, that, like, to go back to the clown thing, I think that explains why the clown bit takes so long. Because it's slapsticky and fun. Also, I'm going to take this moment to say, uh, Mrs. Jumbo did nothing wrong, and solitary confinement is unethical across the board. Yeah, that was dumb. Um, that I think that was the hardest scene for me to watch. Was like, because you can tell she's just like so upset because literally, a whole children like right? like kids messing everything up for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. These kids are the worst. They're the worst. Like, also, why can they go up to the elephants? There's a rope there. Who said that they can cross the rope and go play with the elephant's ears? Like, Alex, <laughs> if they're the kind of kids who would do it, logic like that, like reasoning like that doesn't work. Well, you, you know, know, it's still dumb. Sorry, I'm eating. But, like, <laughs> I have a bagel. But, like, it's still dumb. Like, ugh. It just made me mad. This movie's fun, but, like, this movie's a whole bunch of nothing, honestly. It's really hard to get, like, super in-depth and critical about this thing because it's just so light. It's so surface level, honestly, except for the... Except for the racist stuff. That ain't great. Well, I will say this. Like, I think it proves that point that you made earlier, where, like, the plot... You have plot in the beginning, plot in the middle, plot in the very end. You know, and everything else is just kind of, like, little vignettes of things. And there's not, like, a lot of gravity to the film. There's Like, the stakes aren't high. The stakes aren't... There Are there stakes? I Like, even... I mean, the... the the stakes are Dumbo needing to, like... Okay, here's a take. Uh-huh. The stakes are less about Dumbo learning to be himself, which everyone, like... Like, I I was taught as a kid that Dumbo is about learning to be yourself. No. Dumbo is about learning how to monetize yourself. Exactly. At the end, one of the great things that makes it a happy ending is that... Dumbo signs a contract, like an entertainment contract. And it's because he's able to monetize himself, market himself, and make himself useful to someone else's profit 
that he gets, like, the carriage car all for himself. And then his mom gets out of solitary confinement and they can be reunited. You know, it's, like... And also, like, I will say it's, like, he's able to find, like, his own way of being an elephant. Like, you know, he's able to, like, kind of, like, break the rules of being an elephant, if that makes sense. Like, be a flying elephant. And in that way is, like, being his own self. But it's not the fact that he's a flying elephant that makes it a hat, like makes it a happy ending. It's the fact that he gets to stay with the circus and doesn't have to be a clown anymore. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, were they ever going to, like, kick him out? No. He was, d- he was doing just fine. He had a place to be with regards to, like, the clowning. And we only ever see him do it once. Like, he's also an infant. He doesn't understand that they are not, like, laughing at him specifically. They are laughing at the antics it's not personal it's just work so like i know no i know he's also an elephant how can he understand that how can he understand complex economic issues um but like yeah he's only a kid so one it's cool to put a kid through this two it's really fucking bleak to basically say to children you can be yourself as much as you want, but your only true value is in how you can serve the capitalist market. Which, like, two thoughts. The first one, can we direct? Can we draw that to, like, YouTube influencers? And that whole, like, how that's evolved? I mean, we're also sitting here on, a mic- on microphones assuming that people want to hear our opinions. Exactly. So, like, we're no better because we want to monetize our interests to a degree. Oh, we're going to monetize this? You know what I mean. You know what I mean. We're turn- <laughs> we, are turning our- we are turning our hobbies and our enjoyments into product. Yes. yes. Because we, are a pro- we live in a capitalist society and we are a product of that. And Dumbo is, teaching ki- is essentially teaching kids at an early age, this is how you find value you need to find a way to monetize what makes you different. And like you said, he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it at the behest of someone else's profit. The ringmaster and the rest of the circus are scraping off the top. And Dumbo's an elephant. Dumbo doesn't have need for currency. Currency's not a thing to him. So his his labor and his production are are like hundred wholesale being stolen from him by the bourgeoisie. <laughs> And I also just want to point out, like, again, like, Dumbo is a kid elephant. If he, like, even if, like, let's say, like, he wasn't being a clown, like, he doesn't want to be a clown. He clearly doesn't want to be a clown. I don't think he should be a clown. But, like, let's just say, like, he isn't a clown. The ringmaster, like, at no point in the movie do we get the indication that the ringmaster is just going to leave him and take the circus without him. You know, like, that's never a threat that's made. You know, like, so he literally could just be a kid, a kid elephant in the circus, do his own thing, and, like, like, you know, that's, like, that. that's an option. <laughs> like, he doesn't have to be, like you said, like, working to distinguish himself and 
you know, market himself, essentially. Really, when you think about it, Dumbo isn't going to do that. And, like, it's all the mouse's idea. You sad that your mom's gone? We're going to make you a star so that you don't have to think about it anymore. We're going to get you money so you can buy her out of prison. Prove your value, and you can buy people out of prison. <laughs> I love that literally, tw- like, ten minutes ago, I'm like, I can't get deep on this, and then proceeded to go Marxism on Dumbo. Well, like you said, Walt Disney was a capitalist. Uh-huh, and it's wild how explicit it is in all of these so far. And it's interesting because, like, I watch it and I get, like, little pieces of it, but it's not until we discuss it that, like, I think I truly realize how, like, deep this can get. I think the heart of the story is uh, a lot of fun. Like Dumbo, Dumbo doesn't speak. You know, it's it's a mute character, and for uh, someone who doesn't talk, you know, to be able to connect with the audience in that kind of way. Um, now, obviously, it, it's um, you know, who's the Timothy Q Mouse? Is that what his name is? Um, <laughs> You know, he's he's basically the – it's funny. I never thought about it before, but the anime Afro Samurai is a lot like Dumbo in the way that Afro doesn't speak, but Ninja Ninja. Yo! <laughs> Ninja Ninja talks for him, basically. <laughs> it's the same kind of – I never thought I would compare Afro Samurai to Dumbo, but it just hit me, and I was like, oh, my God. I was you not- blew Harrison's mind just there. You literally blew his mind. I was not ready for fuck. I was not ready to transcend reality on this interview, but fucking here we are. <laughs> Which clearly means the RZA should have done the music for the Dumbo <laughs> remake. <laughs> mm, mm, Would have been better than Elfman's score, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> T- Tim Tim Burton and the RZA is a is a collaboration. Oh. I think that the world could use right about now. Maybe it would help out Burton. I need I need a fucking minute. Holy shit. <laughs> oh my god. Can I tweet that? Can I give you credit? Can I tweet that? Oh my god. Please do. <laughs> like it's oh. it's even it's even hitting me right now. I'm like how did I how did I That would be incredible. Oh my god. How did we get here? Holy shit. The only other thing I had, which I thought was interesting, is, like, we talk a lot about, at least with people, Disney as, like, for children. You know, like, it's a children's movie, it's for children. And I think it's apt that it perpetuates the myth that uh, storks deliver babies. Jesus Christ, yeah. You know, and they even say, like, the, the, the main stork tells Mama Jumbo, like, oh, who's expecting? Like, you know, like, but it's not, like, expecting, like, you tell a pregnant woman, it's, like, who's expecting a delivery almost? Yeah, um, it's also mm, it's dancing around some kind of bleak subject matter because she's clearly waiting for her baby, and she's like, "I don't know where this baby is." So we're like dancing around miscarriages, maybe, and it's very weird. Also, uncredited Ster- Sterling Holloway performance uh, in the Crow, or not the Crow, in the Stork. Um, Winnie the Pooh voices the Stork. That's why his name sound. Oh my god! That's why he. I was like, where have uh-huh. I heard this voice before? Uh-huh. It's, but it was uh, because it was a yeah. stork that I was like. Many, yeah, many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Pooh. Yeah, there's a lot of small cool things about this movie 
but like it's hard to spin them out into like any cogent points. Like I made a note of the fact that the the train is doing. I think I can. I think I can. I thought I could. I knew I could. I knew I could. Going up that mountain, like it's a small thing. So I like had to go. I was like, when did this story originate? And like the er- earliest little engine that could story is dated to like 1906 in like Sweden. Um. So it like the first instance of that phrase specifically appears in a Swedish thing in 1902. The first story appears in 1906. Um. So, like, I didn't realize how old that story was, so it was very weird for me to see that shout-out there and realize that, like, oh, it's even older than this. But, like, there's nothing more, like, analytical I could say about it. I'm just like, yeah, that's cool. That's a nice thing. That was that was refreshing. And there's, like, other little bits in this movie that also, I think, allude to later Disney films. Like, so, I made note of the Heffalumps and Woozles versus Pink Elephants on Parade. And then, um, and I only know this because I've seen this movie, a month, like, a million times. Um, the Ringmaster his like white shirt thing like flips up a lot and like, you know, and that happens to the dad, Mr. Darling and Peter Pan in that opening scene a lot. And I was like, Oh, that's like a repeated gag. But again, like the, and like the hippopotamus, the hippopotamuses in this are like exact same character models as the ones in Fantasia. Oh my gosh. Like, like it is, we're starting to see like, because Disney has like, now that we're a good chunk of the way into early Disney, we're starting to see the animation reuse. And then we'll get to Bambi, where it's all bespoke animation. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, because, like, it's definitely alluding to, like, the Xerox um, money saver. And it's interesting that, like, this is, like, their attempt to kind of, like, like you said, like, conserve, like, not go all out and, like, blow out their budget, but, like, just seeing, like, okay, what, like, sust- trying to sustain their company. Um, and that's that basically, like, Spoiler alert, again, what happens in the Xerox age in the 70s? <laughs> you can't spoiler tag history, Alex. Oh, I did again. <laughs> this episode title is going to be episode four, Dumbo, or you can't spoiler tag history. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's all from us this week. You can find me on Twitter at play underscore champion. And you can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac and on Instagram at Alex Isaac underscore. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also write to us at Dream A Little Deeper Pod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all our guests who took time out of their days to talk to us. You can find SC on Facebook at SC King Official, and you can watch 300 Days to Mars Zero Gravity on YouTube. You can follow Lindsay S. on Twitter at Lexington Sierra. You can follow Tasman's book blog at T Books and Tasman on YouTube and Instagram. And you can find her poetry page at Tasman May Poetry. And you can follow Emily at Emily underscore Michelle on Twitter. Thank you all so much for tuning in this episode. We really appreciate it. Join us next time for our discussion of Bambi. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers. <laughs>